Amen. Let's continue that prayer. Would you bow your heads with me? Holy Spirit, we do ask that you would come and do those things for us right now. That you'd help us to feel your nearness and your presence. That you'd turn our hearts away from the concerns and cares of the world, earthly things. That you'd make us sensitive to the scripture. That you would teach us to cling to the cross. That you would set our souls, our hearts on fire with love for you and with appropriate and necessary passion for your glory. Lord, these are things we can't manufacture. They're things we can't do in our own strength, but we know that these are things that you can produce in us, so we ask you to do so. We offer ourselves to you now, and we ask that you would accomplish your work in us for your glory. Amen. You can open your Bibles once again to Revelation chapter 3. There is no such thing as a perfect church. We prayed for a number of other churches this morning already, and like Stephen mentioned, and as we see in the letters to the churches in Revelation, every church has its challenges, every church has problems, including this one. Uh, We are not a perfect church, but what we see in these letters is that it is actually possible While to not be a perfect church, it is possible to be a faithful church. It is possible to be a loyal church to Christ, a church that even though it's imperfect, a church that doesn't have any systemic issues, a church that doesn't have any critical failures, a church that has not made any damning compromises when it comes to the truth of Scripture. Smyrna and Philadelphia were two such churches that, while I'm sure they had challenges and problems, they were not perfect. When Jesus speaks to them, he offers no rebuke. He offers no correction. He offers no warning. Rather, he encourages them. So as we look at the word of Jesus to the church at Philadelphia today, my hope, my aim is that we would be encouraged and instructed so that we too would be a church before Christ that is found faithful. Let's read our text this morning, Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. And yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. And they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write my name, or I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Before we jump into this sort of extensive word to the church at Philadelphia, it's always helpful to look very briefly at just the background and context of these cities because it just tends to give color and contrast to some of the different statements that are made to the church. Um, This is not Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I just want to make that clear up front. These people would not have been fans of the 76ers or the Steelers or the Phillies or the Flyers, I don't know any other teams. Is it the Flyers in Philadelphia? I can't remember, I'm not a hockey guy. But this is not Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. This was a city in Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. I believe Al-Shahir, is that how you say it? That would, that's the modern day city that in that day was known as Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And it was named Philadelphia because of the unusual love and loyalty that their founder had for his brother, his older brother. Uh, Adalus II, who was known as Adalus Philadelphus, 
was the younger brother uh, at one point of the king of Pergamum. Pergamum was the headquarters of an ancient empire in that region. And there was a rumor that his older brother, who was the king, had been killed in battle. And so Attalus married his brother's widow and ascended to the throne. He became the new king, the new ruler of that empire. However, that rumor proved to be false. His brother was actually alive and his brother showed back up. He came home. Now that's kind of awkward because now his younger brother is married to his wife and sitting on the throne. But what was amazing is that Attalus II promptly divorced his wife and he ceded the throne back to his brother. He gave it back to him. Now, this is shocking because if you read history, we know that usually what happened in all of these empires was these massive family squabbles. It was cloak and dagger stuff. They were always poisoning somebody or assassinating somebody and trying to get to the throne. And so this king, Attalus, was known as a lover of his brother. Because of the loyalty he showed, he honored his brother. Later on, his brother did actually die, and he became the next king. So it was named after his love for his brother, Philadelphia. And while the city was never a major city, like some of the other cities referenced in this book, um, there were some key trade routes. There were key highways that intersected here in this city. That's why it's on the primary mail route. And so the letter of Revelation would have been delivered here. And this city was known as the gateway to the east. It was a strategic location because it had influence in its region. It was actually considered a missionary city, not missionary in the sense of the gospel, but missionary from the standpoint of Greek culture. When the the Greek empire was setting up shop, they were trying to spread their language and their customs and their government and their culture all throughout their empire. And, And so Philadelphia was a strategic city for them to Hellenize or to bring Greek culture to that region. And they were very successful in doing that. After a while, the entire region became Greek speakers. So it was an influential city, historically speaking. Their major exports would have been wool and wine. The reason wine was a big deal there was because of all the volcanic soil in their region. So the vineyards did very, very well there. They were famous for their high-quality wine. But the downside of living near volcanic activity is living near volcanic activity. So... The vineyards did well, but their buildings did not. I think I mentioned, um, talking about Sardis, that there was a major earthquake in AD 17. It was one of the biggest earthquakes in history at that point. And it not only destroyed Sardis, but it also was devastating to the city of Philadelphia. Um, And because of that, many people actually moved out of the city. They got a little bit gun-shy. Uh, They preferred, after that point, to live in huts out in the countryside, single-story dwellings that they could quickly evacuate if it happened again. So there was a little bit of PTSD, a little bit of trauma because of this major uh, crisis that the city experienced, this earthquake. Um, The very few structures that did survive the earthquake were permanently scarred by large cracks and weakened infrastructure. So if you saw certain walls or certain pillars that did remain, uh, they were damaged by this earthquake. Because of the earthquake, the emperor Tiberius put a pause on taxation for the whole region for five years. And because of that, the grateful Philadelphians actually renamed their city at one point Neo-Caesarea, the new city of Caesar. They were so thankful that he sort of gave them some of that financial relief and even sent funds to help them rebuild their city. Uh, About 10 years later, they renamed it again to Flavia uh, after the family name of the Roman imperial uh, family. Uh, So keep that in mind, that Philadelphia would have been known for their earthquakes and for their name changes. Keep that in mind because that's going to come in handy later. So what does Jesus have to say upon the inspection of this church? Well, we see the verdict, really, in verse 8. Right in the middle of verse 8, he says, I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. He says, you have little power. And this is not a negative statement. This is not a rebuke. This is not a criticism. He's not faulting them for this. Uh, This is just the facts. The church there was not that impressive, on the outside. The church did not have a major influence in their city. To put it in modern terms, you would not have found this church on the cover of 
Church Growth Magazine or Christianity Today or whatever your, your magazine of choice may be. Um, this church did not have the most popular YouTube channel in the region, okay? Uh, they did not have great power. They didn't have the largest congregation. They didn't have the most impressive building. They didn't have a celebrity pastor like Ephesus did. Uh, they didn't have high-profile members there like Lydia, this representative of the trade guilds. Uh, they were, when you look at all the seven churches, they were the runt of the litter. It says, I, I know that you have little power, but... In the eyes of Christ, this little power, this small power, it doesn't really matter because Jesus delights in the small things. Jesus loves things that are unimpressive. And this church was near and dear to the heart of Christ because Jesus could actually relate to them. Jesus is the one, isn't he, who set aside all his glory. He set aside the divine prerogatives of his power as the Son of God to put on flesh and become a man. He humbled himself. Jesus is the one who was a suffering servant. Isaiah 53 says that he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom, whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. So Jesus looks at this church, and though they are little in power, he's fine with that. He does not fault them for that. You see, the Jesus that we worship delights to eat with sinners and tax collectors, the most unexpected members of the kingdom. Jesus delights to take fishermen and tradesmen and make them the leaders of his church, and Jesus delights to save people like you and me. People who are really not that impressive. I love what Paul tells the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. See, Jesus didn't need this church to be powerful, because Jesus is powerful. So it's okay. He says, I know that you have little power, and yet, and yet, these people, despite the fact that they are small and unimpressive, he says, but here's the key. They have kept his word, and they did not deny, verse 8, his name. They kept his word, and they did not deny his name. Despite their lack of power from an earthly perspective, they were strong in their faith, strong in their conviction. Unlike Sardis, unlike Thyatira, unlike Pergamum, unlike Ephesus, they kept his word. To keep his word, I think it has two aspects. We can really break that down. What does it mean to keep his word? Why is Jesus so pleased with them? To keep his word means, number one, guarding the gospel, preserving truth. It's the preservation of the apostolic message. They refused to tolerate anything that would distort the message of the gospel. They refused to tolerate anything that would detract from the life-giving truth that had been handed down to them through the, the regional ministry of Paul as his headquarters were in Ephesus for a number of years. They were faithful to guard and preserve and protect the essential truth of the faith. Paul admonished Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.13. He said, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Jesus Christ. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. This church had done that. They had guarded the good deposit. They had kept Jesus' word. They had kept it pure. They had kept it central. They had kept it from the attacks and the impurities that threatened to come in. When you consider how several of the other churches on the mail route had allowed false teachers to gain access, they had allowed poisonous ideas to corrupt the church, 
it really stands out that this little church had kept the word of Christ. They'd guarded it and preserved his truth as if their very life depended on it, because it did. The church at Sardis was dead, and these guys are not. But there's a second aspect to what it means to keep the word of Christ, not only guarding and preserving the truth, but secondly, it has this idea of obedience. To keep his word is to obey his word. It's one thing to preserve the truth, but it's another thing to actually pursue obedience to that truth. But this obedience is really at the heart of what it means to keep his word. The church at Philadelphia was simply doing what Jesus had said during his earthly ministry. In John 14, verse 23, Jesus said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So Jesus commends the church at Philadelphia primarily for this one simple but profound mark of faithfulness. They have kept his word. I really think it's a theme in this text. We see it in verse 8, that they have kept his word. In verse 10, it says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you. You see the, the play on words here about keeping. And I think that that informs how we understand the command in verse 11. He says, hold fast to what you have. Keep keeping the word. Keep preserving and protecting it. Keep obeying the gospel and the message that you've heard from me. The reference to those who conquer in verse 12 are those who keep the word. I think this is really the theme in this text. We can boil down the simple point of this passage to one phrase. That Jesus commands and commends keeping his word. He commands it. That's what he instructs us to do. He says, hold fast. But he also commends it. He blesses it. He approves of it as we keep and preserve and obey his word. So Jesus commands and commends keeping his word. That's the point of this letter to Philadelphia. So what I want to focus on this morning is simply that, on, on being a church that would keep the word of Christ so that we might receive the same approval that the church at Philadelphia received. So I want to reflect on this theme of keeping Christ's word. And three truths, I think, stand out as we look at this theme. Number one, we find this in verse seven. Keeping Jesus' word requires that we see him rightly. Keeping Jesus' word requires that we see him rightly. Look in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Verse 7 opens up this word to Philadelphia with a description of who and what Jesus is. Is. It's a statement of his, his character and his identity. At first, he says that Jesus is the Holy One of God, the words of the Holy One. Jesus is the one that Isaiah saw. Remember that vision that Isaiah has, Isaiah chapter 6, where he sees the throne room of God and he sees this vision and the seraphim are crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Jesus is the Holy One, the one that the seraphim worshiped. Jesus is utterly pure, free from sin, free from corruption. Jesus is totally other. He is unique. He is separate. He is, he is transcendent. And he is set apart uniquely as the Son of God. This is the truth that the disciples discovered uh, during their time with Jesus. In John chapter 6, verse 67, several left after Jesus said hard words. And he says to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's who Jesus is. Even the demons, even the demons acknowledged it. In Mark chapter 1, verse 24, this demon in the synagogue that was oppressing this individual cries out when Jesus draws near, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Even the enemy knows 
that that's who Jesus is. He is the Messiah, God's holy, anointed son. And the believers at Philadelphia knew this. That's why they kept his word, and that's why they would not, and they could not deny his name. When pressed, whether it was from pagan uh, idol worshipers or from from Roman governmental powers or from uh, Jewish religious groups, they refused to deny his name because they knew who Jesus was. He is the holy one. Not only is he the holy one, he is the true one. Secondly, the true one. Jesus is the way, and he is the truth, and he is the life. Jesus is truth incarnate, and there is a sense here of him being the real and the true Messiah. There have been many imposters throughout history, people who claimed to be the Messiah. There have been imposters throughout history as well who claimed to be the Son of God. In fact, many of the Roman emperors claimed to be sons of the gods, the Son of God. But Jesus is the real one. He is the only one who is true, the genuine Messiah, the Son of God. He is no imposter. This was confirmed at his baptism as the voice spoke from heaven, this is my beloved Son. It was confirmed by the power of the resurrection. Romans 1.4 tells us that Jesus Christ our Lord was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. There's a reason why we think Jesus is the Son of God. There's a reason we think it's true that he is exactly who he claimed to be. Because he rose from the dead. No one else did. And that was God's declaration that he is true, that he is the Son of God. He's the Holy One. He is the true one. But look at what else Jesus says about himself. It says he has the key of David. He has the key of David. It's interesting here, in chapter 1, verse 18, John writes that Jesus has the keys to death and hell, that Jesus has power or authority over that realm. Here we find that Jesus also has the keys to salvation and to eternal life. He has the keys of David, meaning he has power and authority in the kingdom of God. This speaks to his messianic authority to open the gates and to grant access and salvation to whomever he desires. What that means is that if Jesus says you're invited, then you're invited. If Jesus says that you belong, then you belong. If Jesus says that you are accepted by God, then you are accepted by God. He has the authority. He has the key of David. On the flip side... If Jesus shuts you out, there is no other way in. He has the key of David. He opens and no one will shut, but he also shuts and no one else can open. Now, unlike the portions addressed to other churches, this description we find here of Jesus as holy and true and having David's keys This description doesn't come from the vision we saw in chapter 1. All the other introductory statements in those other letters, they're all grabbing bits and pieces of what John saw in John chapter 1. But this rather pulls um, imagery and symbolism from the Old Testament, not from that vision. You might say, why is that? Well, perhaps I think it's because of the nature of what this church was facing. They were facing opposition from the Jewish community at the synagogue in Philadelphia. We have this reference here in verse 9 to what Jesus calls um, the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. The fact that Jesus is true that he is the Holy One, the Messiah. The fact that he has the authority uh, as the one who has the keys of David over the kingdom of God, it puts him in stark contrast to the fake Jews that are mentioned here in verse 9. These religious Jews opposed the gospel. They rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And they thought that they were the true people of God. But because they rejected the Holy One, the true one, they were those that Paul had in mind when he wrote in Romans chapter 9 that not all Israel is Israel. That those who reject Jesus Christ, they forfeit the promises and the blessings that were given to the nation Israel. These people were against Jesus, which meant that they were actually aligned with Satan. That's why he calls them a synagogue of Satan. They had the spirit of Antichrist in this sense, like 1 John talks about. They denied who Jesus was. 
First John 2.20 says, You've been anointed by the Holy One, and you have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. When he calls them a synagogue of Satan, he's basically saying these people, though they are Jewish by blood, they have sided with the devil because they've rejected God's Messiah. And so their claim to be the people of God is empty. It's a lie. And unlike those imposters who lie, Jesus is true. And even though the members of the synagogue considered themselves to be the gatekeepers, the guardians of the truth, and the true inheritors of the kingdom, it's Jesus, not them, who holds the key of David. So I think that's why these Old Testament themes are being pulled out, is because of that contrast. And so really here is we find this description of Christ as holy, true, and having the key of David. It's a call to faith. It's a call to faith to believe in Jesus to trust the word of Jesus, to keep the word of Jesus despite what anybody else says, despite secular opposition or religious opposition, to be faithful to Christ. These people kept the word of Jesus and they did not deny his name because they knew who Jesus was. It's only when we see Jesus as he really is that we will be moved to to trust him, to love him, to obey him. Keeping Jesus' word requires, number one, that we see him rightly. But there's a second point I want to pull out. Number two, keeping Jesus' word also reveals true citizens of heaven. Those who keep Jesus' word are proven to be the children of God, the true citizens of heaven. We see this in verse 8 through 9. He says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. There's a phrase that's been used more and more over the last few years. You've probably heard it. Um, Being on the right side of history. How many of you guys have heard that term or or that phrase? That you don't want to be on the wrong side of history, or these people will be found eventually to be on the right side of history. That, that phrase is often meant to intimidate people, to put pressure on them, to get, get on board with whatever group is claiming the moral high ground at the moment. And that phrase, being on the right side of history, it implies that one day in time, whatever's going on now, whatever disagreements or conflicts are happening, it's going to be seen one day for what it really is. And there's going to be a judgment that is made about who is right and who is wrong, and history will not be kind to the losers. That's why we hear this phrase, being on the right side of history, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history. And people use that to pressure and manipulate more often than not. But I actually think it's a good phrase. It's a great statement The problem is that most people just don't really understand where history is actually going. They don't know the true arc of history, that history is not bending towards some eventual human progress. Things are not getting better. Rather, history is bending towards judgment day. When Jesus returns and the kingdom of God is established on the earth, And what that means is that it's not our current cultural elites who get to determine where the the lines are drawn. They don't get to to announce who is the heroes and who are the villains. We're all characters in a story written by God, who is the Lord of history. And it is his son, Jesus Christ, who is true and who is holy, who has the keys of David. He is the savior and judge of the world. And we want to be on the right side of history, which means we want to be on Jesus' side. Because he is there standing as the victor at the end of history. So why do I say all that? Well, again, let's bring this back to this text. The Jewish community in Philadelphia was a source of opposition for the church. And they claimed to be on the right side of history. They claimed to be the true followers of God. They claimed to be God's chosen people. And they accused the followers of Christ of being heretics. 
of being false teachers, of being deceived and believing a lie. But in keeping his word, this little church proved to be the true citizens of heaven. And this is seen in the promises that Jesus gives them. He says in verse 8, he says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. Jesus says, you guys are the ones who have access and entrance into my kingdom. So don't worry about what they say, because I am opening the way for you. They have entrance into the kingdom of God. That's who they are, and that is their destiny. And secondly, they're going to have victory over their enemies. Verse 9 talks about how these Jewish people are going to come and bow down before their feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. There was a Jewish hope that, that they would one day share in the messianic reign of their Messiah, that they would share in his victory, and that all the Gentiles, all their enemies, would come and bow down before their feet. And there's a reason they believe this. It's because the Old Testament talks about it. And so there's a reason for this hope. But what we see here is that Jesus is saying that what these Jewish people expected was going to be turned completely upside down. It was the people at this synagogue, the synagogue of Satan, those who rejected Christ, that would actually come and bow down at the feet of the members of this church. Because the members of this church would be standing with Jesus. And when Jesus comes back, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And that means vindication for this church. Even though they've been accused of being heretics and they've been said that they are outside of God's kingdom, by keeping the word of Christ, they are shown to be the true citizens of heaven. And he says in verse 9, they will learn that I have loved you. They're loved by God. They're loved by God. And this, this statement of love is more than just warm feelings. It's saying more than just, I really, really like you guys, and I feel this, this closeness with you. It does mean that, but it means more. Again, to put it in the context of this Jewish community, this is covenant faithfulness. This is the chesed of Yahweh in the Old Testament, his steadfast love that endures forever and keeps his promises and fulfills all of his purposes for his people. Jesus says, they will learn that I have loved you, that I keep my covenant promises and I give those blessings to you. That is what's going to happen on the last day. Those who demonstrate the word of Christ, or those who keep the word of Christ rather, when you keep his word, you demonstrate that you actually love him, which is great, right? Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. So keeping his word shows we love him. But we're encouraged here with this, that when we keep his word, he loves us, and we are assured by that. And it's not just that Jesus loves us. He's going to make sure everybody else knows that he loves us. To put it in another, uh, another sense, the church is not Jesus' secret girlfriend. It's not that Jesus has this anonymous love for the church that he doesn't really tell anybody about. No, the church is his bride, and he will proudly welcome and receive his bride in the most grand wedding ceremony of all time. When history is complete, it is the church that will be there in the kingdom, and all her opponents will bow before Christ and before his bride, who is standing at his side. He says, they will know that I have loved you. It is a perfect, faithful, and public love that Christ has for this little church who's not very impressive, not very strong, but they have kept his word. The followers of Jesus were fools, according to Rome. They were heretics, according to the rulers in the synagogue. But in reality, they were on the right side of history because they kept the word of Jesus. And so they proved to be true citizens of heaven. Keeping, God's, or keeping Christ's word requires that we see him as he is. It also reveals that we're true citizens of heaven. But third, keeping Jesus' word results in a secure destiny. And this is so encouraging. Keeping Jesus' word results in a secure destiny. Verses 10 through 12. He says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, 
which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Keeping the word of Jesus results in a secure destiny. I think everyone desires security and permanence. When you think about the difficulties we faced as a nation over the last few years, we felt very vulnerable. We're vulnerable to viruses. We're vulnerable to economic changes. We're vulnerable to other nations and what they may do militarily. Uh, We are vulnerable. We want security. And, And we also want permanence. It's hard for us when things change. It's hard for us to get older. It's hard for us to say goodbye to people. It's hard for us to lose what we once had. There's this longing we all have just as humans for security and for permanence. But there is a security and a permanence that is promised to those who keep the word of Jesus. He says in verse 10, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. We're not promised as Christians that we have immunity from all the hardships or sufferings in the world. Christians suffer. Christians get cancer. Christians die. Christians lose. Christians hurt. Christians cry. We're not promised that we will be immune from adversity or difficulty or hardship. But what Jesus does promise is that he will keep us from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole earth. What Jesus promises this church is that no matter how hard things may get in this world, one thing they will not have to experience, one thing from which they are kept perfectly safe and secure, is that they will not have to go through the outpouring of divine wrath that is coming in the great tribulation. This hour of trial refers not just to tribulation in general. It refers to this focused period of time, a definite period of time that is coming one day in the future. And this trial is not local. It's not like the 10 days of tribulation that Smyrna had to go through that was local and contained. No, this is a time that is coming on the whole earth. It is universal. And this little phrase, those who dwell on the earth, if you read the rest of Revelation, you will see that this phrase, those who dwell on the earth, is always used to describe unbelievers who are living on earth in rebellion against Christ. So this phrase is used over and over again that way. So so this phrase, the hour of trial that is coming on the whole earth, uh, on those who dwell on the earth, I think it's referring to the great day of the Lord, this future time of great tribulation, This time that Jesus says in Matthew 24 is unlike anything that had ever come before it. And it is unlike anything that will ever happen again after it. It is a time that Jesus says is so severe that if God did not cut those days short, if God doesn't bring it to an end, it would lead to the extinction of the entire human race. That's how severe this time of universal judgment is. But notice the beautiful wordplay here, what Jesus says. He says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Jesus says he will guard them, that he will preserve them, that he will rescue them from this time. Now there's two very important questions, two big questions that people always ask when they come to this text. First, what does it mean to keep them from? And if you have different views on the timing of the tribulation and the rapture and all those things, this is probably a point where you get really excited and get really interested. Uh, Does this mean that Jesus is going to take them out of the world? That they won't be there, they'll be raptured out, and so they won't have to face the time of tribulation? Is that what Jesus is saying? Or does he mean that he's going to protect them and preserve them just like God did for the Israelites in Goshen during the plagues in Egypt? Is he going to to somehow preserve them and carry them through the time of the tribulation? And now people read this different ways, and basically your view on the rapture shows when you come to this text. Um, This text is not one that I think is quite clear enough to answer the question. It's just one that we probably bring our assumptions to the table with. Uh, It can technically mean that God is going to keep them in terms of protecting them um, by removal, by keeping them out of this time of tribulation. I mean, if the realm of judgment and trial is the whole world, 
then what better way to keep them than by taking them out of that realm in which all the judgment is happening? And I think the Greek language even leans this way. It uses this little preposition, ek, which means out of. Um, But it can also mean that Jesus is going to preserve them and protect them in the midst of all of it. Uh, I, I think there's a different Greek preposition that means in or through that would have more clearly indicated that. Um, But technically, it it can mean either one. But here's what's clear. No matter whether you think the church is raptured out of the the earth and therefore does not go through the tribulation, which is the view I hold and the view we teach of this church, or whether you disagree with me because you like to take wrong views and you think that... (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Um, If you hold to a a post-tribulational view that the church is going to go through the rapture and then Christ will gather his elect. Either way, here's what this text says. The church will not experience God's wrath. That's what's clear. That's what we all agree on, no matter your view on the rapture, is that Jesus promises his faithful church, those who keep his word, that he will keep them from this hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell upon the earth. So we, we can go deeper into that, we would have, but we'd have to go to other passages, and that's outside the scope of what we're trying to do today. So if you're interested in that discussion on the rapture, I would refer you to our Sunday school class a few months ago. We were teaching through eschatology. We talked at length about the rapture, and I tried to give some persuasive reasons why we believe the best explanation from Scripture is that the church will actually be taken out of Uh, this hour of trial. We will be taken from the earth. Jesus will gather his saints to be with him. Um, And therefore, they will not be there at this time where God's wrath is poured out on the earth. So that's one big question people always have. Does this mean the rapture or does this mean protection? Um, Technically, it can mean either one. I'm convinced that it's better explanation to talk about the rapture. But there's another question. Does this apply to all churches or just the church at Philadelphia? You might say, okay, J.D., this means that the church at Philadelphia won't have to go through the rapture, but that doesn't mean our church won't or another church down the street won't. Um, How do we think about that? Well, I think verse 13 is helpful here. Verse 13 says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I think there's a universal application for the warnings and, and the promises and the blessings that are given to the churches in these letters And that it's right for us to look for a a universal and and ongoing application for these promises. So I I, I think it's best to read this as applying to all believers, all churches, that those who keep the word of Christ, those who embrace and believe in the gospel, that they will not face the coming judgment of God. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 says, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. What an encouraging promise this would have been to the believers at Philadelphia. There is security. There is safety for them. That Jesus is going to protect them from the wrath to come. But there's more. Not only does he say that he will keep them from the hour of trial, but in verse 12 he says, He will make them a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. This is a promise, once again, of belonging for those who have been excluded from the synagogue. They've been excluded. They've been kicked out. They don't have access to the place where God's law was being talked about, and and they professed that God was being worshipped. But Jesus says, I will make you a pillar, a fixture, a permanent place of standing in the temple of my God. So if you had to pick between a synagogue on earth and an eternal heavenly temple, which would you choose? We'll take the temple every time, right? And they have this place of permanence there in the temple. What a blessing, what a promise. This also would have communicated not just belonging, but also stability. It would have communicated permanence. Remember, this city had gone through a big earthquake. And even if you go back today to this part of the world, when you go to some of these ancient ruins, the only thing left standing is these pillars. So you can go and you can look at the footings for walls, you can find broken pottery, but you will find these tall pillars still standing. And Jesus says, I will make you a pillar. When everything shakes, when everything is destabilized, 
Despite all the tumult and the chaos and the craziness of the world, I'm going to make you something that stands firm. This would have made a lot of sense to people who lived in a a region that had been ravaged by earthquakes. Hebrews chapter 12 uses very similar language. I love what Hebrews 12, 26 says. It says, speaking of the future and Christ's return, it says, first he looks back at Sinai in Exodus. He says, at that time on Mount Sinai, his voice shook the earth. There's an earthquake there as God spoke and gave his law. But now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Talking about the return of Christ and the shaking of this realm as everything gets turned inside out and upside down. The author of Hebrews says, this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Jesus says, there's a kingdom coming. I'm going to shake everything else so that only the unshakable can remain. And he says, I'm going to make you, those who keep my word, I will make you pillars in my temple, stable, permanent, unshaken. Not only that, he says, he will give them a name, a name. Verse 12, once again, he says, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. Once again, remember, this is a city that has been renamed multiple times. And they've been named after someone who claimed to be the son of God, the Roman emperor, They were Neo-Caesarea and then later Flavia. But Jesus promises them a better name than a Roman name, a better name than the name of the Roman emperor, even a better name than being accepted by the Jewish community at the synagogue. They will not be called by the name of Neo-Caesarea or Flavia. They will be called by the name of God. They will be called by the name of Christ. And this too will be permanent. There will be no renamings after this renaming. This will be their final status. And this is good news for a people whose city kept changing names. And this reference here to the new Jerusalem that is coming down, this stands again in stark contrast to the synagogue. The leaders of the synagogue had official papers that showed they were approved of by the the big bosses in Jerusalem, earthly Jerusalem. But Jesus says, listen, you are accepted and you bear the name of the heavenly Jerusalem, the true Jerusalem. We see this Jerusalem coming down out of heaven in Revelation chapter 21. In the new heaven, in the new earth, John sees this heavenly city coming down like a bride adorned for her husband. And John hears a loud voice that says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. That is the city where the saints will be established. That is the city where they will dwell. That is the city where they will bear this name, the name of this city, this God, this Christ. And this is unchanging, permanent, and stable. Let me ask you, do you feel out of place in this world today? I hope you do. I hope this doesn't feel too much like home. If you feel like a stranger in this country, it's because you are. We don't belong here. This world's system is not where we as Christians find our place. This is not where we find our identity. This is not where we look for our security. This world is temporary. And as believers today, we're learning that. We are more and more being excluded, aren't we? As Christians, we are more and more losing access to the political sphere, to the public square, to the schools, losing our access and respectability in polite society at every level. But Jesus promises to make those who keep his word as pillars in his temple so that when everything is shaken, we will be firmly established in what remains and that we will bear his name. And that's good news for people who are often outsiders looking in in this world. 
Jesus commands and commends keeping his word, guarding it, preserving it, believing it, and obeying it. So as those who have received the word of Christ, let's resolve to let his word shape our thoughts and our perspective. I hope that you are encouraged today by these promises. And I hope that we as a church will listen to this command in verse 11. He says, I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Listen, if we depart from the word of Christ, there is no life, there is no reward, there is no crown for us. Those who go out from us, John says, are not really of us. But those who keep it, those who hold fast, we have everything to receive in eternity. Let's resolve to obey the command of Jesus, to hold fast to his word. And we can look forward to receiving all the promises that he gives to his faithful saints. Would you join me in prayer? Lord Jesus, thank you for revealing to us your perfect word. It's been preserved and handed down through the prophets and the apostles, through the early church, through the saints of the Reformation, through the Puritans, through our grandparents and great-grandparents, through those pastors and Sunday school teachers and parents who taught us the gospel. We thank you for giving us your word, and we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you promise us a great reward in keeping your word. It's a rich treasure for us. Lord, I pray that this church would maintain a high value on the word of Christ, that we would be faithful to guard it, protect it, believe it, and obey it. Lord, encourage us today. Pray that you would help us to see your promises, that we would take comfort in knowing we belong to you, and that the security and the permanence that we long for it's found in Christ. Thank you, Lord, that you profess that you love us. No matter what anybody else says, if you love us, that's enough. Your faithfulness to us is enough. Lord, for those among us today who may not have received and kept your word, perhaps this gospel message that Jesus is Lord, that he is the holy and true Messiah who came to die for sinners and rise again, I pray that today they would receive your word that they would believe it, that you would establish them as, as pillars in your temple, that you would write your name on them, label them as your own, so that your kingdom grows, so that there are more voices to give worship to Christ for all of eternity. We pray this, Lord, with, with eagerness and with longing. We, we know that there are those in our community who don't know Christ. I pray that we as a church, as we keep your word, would also proclaim it, that we would seek and find those who are lost in this city who need to hear that the places that they are looking for security and permanence, that it's really empty. The places they're looking for identity and purpose, it's empty. And it only leads to destruction. All those things are going to be shaken. I pray that we would be faithful to proclaim the truth of Christ, the love of Christ, and the word of Christ. We pray that you'd use us, Lord. Use us for your glory to do so. Amen.